A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Lore of Us podcast, where the lore hounds your guides to a fungal apocalypse. I'm John. And I'm David. And this is our coverage of the HBO original series, The Last of Us. In this podcast, we'll be discussing our general thoughts about this bold episode before getting into our in-depth scene-by-scene breakdown of Season 1, Episode 3, Long, Long Time. Be sure to stick around to the end of the podcast for our programming notes about other great podcasts coming from us and our podcasting peers. One of our favorite things about podcasting is getting your feedback. We love to hear fan theories, pickups on details that we might have missed, and to hear what folks are thinking about the episode and season overall. You can send us feedback in two ways. Email us at tlou at thelorehounds.com or use our fancy new voicemail service and we'll play your feedback on the next podcast. Go to thelorehounds.com slash contact, scroll all the way down to the bottom for the voicemail, and then we'll get to all of that feedback on the next episode. If you want to keep talking The Last of Us with us, join us over on the Bald Move Discord server. Link is in the show notes and at baldmove.com. We have a well-moderated server and dedicated thread set up for The Last of Us. Each episode is siloed, so you can join the conversations at any time without worrying about spoilers. A quick reminder about our Patreon. If you like what we're doing and you feel like you'd like to support us directly, check us out at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. For just three bucks a month, you get all of our past podcasts ad-free, you get early access to upcoming podcasts, and much more. Of course, you can always get our ad-supported podcasts on our Lorehounds feed by searching for us on your podcast application of choice, or by using the subscription tool at thelorehounds.com. Lastly, we just ask that if you have a minute and you're enjoying us, please take a moment and rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, this is like the best way you can support us. I mean, this is what gets us up in the rankings. This is what gets us in front of more ears. And this is what lets us make more podcasts. So, David, you're again, you are the new person to this franchise. What did you think of this episode? Um, well, I have to say um, it is a bold episode. 
Um, I was, I think on my rewatch as I was doing the outline, I didn't, I was more moved, I think, in my rewatch than I was at the first one. Because on the first watching, I think I was just sort of caught kind of like a deer in the headlights, like, oh my God, what are they doing? Are they actually doing it? What What am I seeing here? Oh my, <laughs> you know, I was just continually amazed that they were pushing the plot uh, the way that they were, the the to the depths of the relationship that they were showing us, the incredible acting that we saw on display. Um, and I really thought, like, bold is the word that comes to mind for me, like, to sum up this episode. It was bold in one, in one way that it took focus away from Joel and Ellie and for that huge middle section. And this was a long episode, too. It was like an hour 20. Yeah. Um, hour 20-something. Um, you know, it took the bulk of our time and focused it on these two characters who were never going to meet again. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, their storyline is done for all intensive purposes. And that is a really bold choice uh, creatively. Um, it was bold to see a, a gay love story that ends well. Agreed. You know, it, it's bold in that the characters exited on their terms, right? They were dealing with the circumstances of life as, as you know, as they have them. And they made choices for themselves that were for themselves. And that was incredible. Like, normally, we don't see that kind of stuff. And especially, there's a, there's a whole weird thing, especially with lesbian relationships, where, like, they end up being killed. There, yes. I think some people have done some um, academic studies on this, and this sort of, like, lesbian tax, or the sort of lesbian punishment thing. Um, and so, to see these two um, gay characters be able to live their life fully and then exit on their terms was just an incredibly bold choice. It was bold in the way that it played with some of the tropes. You know, the whole thing of like Bill being a survivalist or a prepper, whatever you want to call him, and, uh, you know, uh, jackbooted thugs and whatnot. But here he is, a, a whole incomplete person that can have a deeply satisfying relationship. And, you know, to, to have these two characters living in this, you know, hellscape of a post-apocalyptic world, you know, but seeking beauty and, and creating a peaceful haven for themselves. So that was awesome. You know, it kind of turns the whole uh, post-apocalyptic trope upside down. And then I think, and from what you've told me, it's very bold because it, it's a huge departure from the game. Enormous. So all the game fans are like, wait, what? And then all of us non-game, you know, watchers are like, oh, this is cool. Uh, but everybody is like, at the same time, like, uh, this is an amazing storyline. So, like, to me, boldness just sums up the totality of the episode. Yeah, and I'll say that the game fans that I have talked to, uh -huh. I would say, like, 95% of them love the change. Like, okay. it, and I, I do, for sure. I mean, this is a much better story than we were told in the game. I think part of that is the medium. Like, I don't think that you could tell this story in an action game because people just get bored because there's not a lot of action. Right. But... This is a great way to translate it to television and get us to the same endpoint that Joel ends up in with Ellie. Interesting. After meeting Bill in the game. Interesting. So should we talk a little game spoilery here, or how are we going to handle? How should we handle that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been upfront that we're going to talk game spoilers during this. I mean, we're right. not going to go past the point. So I'm not going to spoil you on what happens in future episodes. I'm just going to talk about 
things that happened in the show already that happened differently in the game. Right. And we're not going to, yeah. Uh, and, and then if you don't want to even hear that, you know, skip ahead 10, 15 seconds and we'll, you should be safe. So here's what happens in the game. Joel and Ellie nav- navigate through Bill's traps to get to him. Joel had never met Bill before in person, only Tess had. Bill was alone and cranky when they found him after getting through the town in the, the town of infected to Bill. They find Frank's decayed body hanged. On a table, they find a letter Frank wrote to Bill saying he was trying to leave him but got bitten and that he'd rather die than spend one more day with him. Bill tells Joel to get the fuck out of his town and we never see him again. <laughs> that is a radical departure. It sure is, huh? Um, if you're uh, coming back from, because you skipped ahead of the spoilers, it's safe now. We won't talk about the specifics other than like, wow, that is a radical departure. Very radical. Oh my God. I mean, here's, here's the thing. So I want to tell you my anxiety about this now is that oh. so for the whole episode, mm-hmm. I'm sitting there like, when is Frank going to like turn on Bill? Oh, right. Like, when is this going to fall apart? <laughs> so I have this impending sense of doom the whole episode. This dread that I can't shake. And then finally, I realize that, like, oh, no, this is going to work out. I will tell you, even to the point of with the pills, I thought that Bill was not going to actually poison uh, Frank. And then uh-huh. it was going to be a big fight and that was going to be their falling out. I still to the, almost the end, I was like, oh, this is going to fall apart. That's how strong it was in the game. It must have really shocked you then in that first time jump uh, in their relationship when they had their sort of first argument and you thought, okay, this is it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, okay, all right. So they're doing it pretty close to the game. No. And then, no. <laughs> Fair no, enough. No. In fact, my wife and I turned to each other and said, <laughs> when Frank comes in the, and falls into the pit, we were like, oh, Bill, game Bill would have shot Frank at this point. He wouldn't have, oh, you don't have a weapon? Cool. <laughs> oh, God. You know, down in the hole and just that cover you it. up. When that would have been it. Right. <laughs> exactly. So what were your um, meta thoughts on the episode? I thought it was really great. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a bold choice, like you said, to depart so far from the game. And it was a bold choice to take us away from Joel and Ellie for so long. Mm-hmm. But I also think that the way this story affects Joel's motivations going forward is incredibly important and actually is a much stronger way to get Joel to where he should be mm-hmm. than the game does it. Interesting. Do you think it's, does it rest on the letter? Well, a little bit, yeah. I think that it, I don't think that Bill really inspires Joel to do anything in the game, to be honest with you. In the game? I think that Bill, yeah, in the game. I think that Bill in the game just kind of depresses Joel and is like, all right, take this car and get out. Because he does help Mm -hmm. him with the car in the game, but like that's basically all he does for him. And that's, that's what we needed to move forward. So that's where we're at, you know? But in the, in the show, you have Joel, who is extremely hesitant to take on Ellie, you know, largely because he doesn't right. want to feel attached to somebody. He keeps he lost Sarah. He lost Tess. Right. And then you have Bill saying, you and I were born to do this. You and I were born to yeah. protect other people, to protect right. a, a person that we love. And Joel, I think he, I think it really hits him. I think the fact that he won't read the last part out loud shows you how emotionally impacted he was by that. Yeah. I totally agree. And I just think that that's brilliant. Yeah. I think that um, what he's dealing with, and we touched on this in a previous episode, you know, sort of this, this shame quality, right? He, f- he failed with his daughter. Now he's failed with Tess. And now he's burdened with 
somebody who's potentially um, who has the potential to change the game on this infection, not the game game, but like the change the fundamentals of, of um, you know, post-apocalyptic society. And that is a lot of pressure on him. And then for Bill to sort of charge him with, I give you all my stuff to protect Tess, right? Oh, crap. And it's got to be, he's got to protect Ellie now. Yeah. It really hammers into you where Joel's head is at, I think. I think yeah. that, you know, this whole game is about sort of Joel and Ellie healing through each other. Uh-huh. And the question is, are they doing it in a healthy way or are they growing <laughs> right. more toxic sort of in their, in their relationship, right? Because there's, you know, the showrunners were saying like they did this episode to show you the beauty of love in a post-apocalyptic world, like the beauty mm. of what it do- can do. Is that what Joel and Ellie will end up with? That's the question. Not romantically, but like right, the, yeah, the yeah. beauty of their love, father and, and daughter. I think the television show has to strike a different beat than the video game, right? And again, not having played the video game, um, and it's a medium thing, right? It's, it's the, the, the structure of how the story is being told, the actual, you know, using a controller and moving through the world as opposed to sitting passively and letting photons hit the back of your eyeballs. Um, we, and, and something that is true to our human condition of liking stories like stories are an important part of our not only our internal psychological makeup but in also in our outward sociological construct of society and civilization you know uh, it's it's a lot of basis on story and we at least in uh north american culture and certainly it's being exported because i think this show might be a bigger phenomenon too we like to have stories where things work out, <laughs> right? Where yeah. families stay together, where the hero prevails, where love conquers, you know, these kinds of things. And when we have depressing and dark stories, we need a light around it, right? We need, you know, a silver lining of some kind or something. Otherwise, we, we don't enjoy it. Like, I think that's one of my personal reasons why I've not enjoyed succession so far is that I can't identify with a good person in there. Now, granted, I've only seen a little bit of season one, so I don't know what happens in, in later seasons. But, you know, it, it's crazy because, I don't know, people love that show. I, I, I personally have a problem in that I, I can't find the, something to grab onto there. And um, I know that I like stories where I can see uh, a character... Not necessarily that I can one-on-one associate myself with, but I can at least see that character's point of view, and I can see them moving forward through the challenging challenges, adapting, overcoming, you know, and whether they achieve ultimate success or not, I want to feel like there was that forward motion. So I don't know how the gameplay is, but it sounds like the game is a lot darker <laughs> in many ways. Um, sure, sure. Um, I am sure that we're going to go dark places in the show. Okay. Otherwise, they're just going to be too far off from the game. But I do agree with you. Like, you know, people praised Game of Thrones for sort of breaking free of that everything works out thing, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. This is spoilers for season one of Game of Thrones, but I, I it's too long now. Um, Ned Stark getting his head chopped off. 
Right. And we love that. <laughs> yeah. You're just like all of a sudden like, oh, my God, this is a show where the stakes are real. Yeah. And I think that this show is the same, but this show does something that I think that Game of Thrones never did fully, which is showing you that like sometimes it does work out, right? Like the re- the real world, like, okay, yeah, sometimes things suck, but sometimes it does work out. And that's what's happening with Bill and Frank. Like they just had a great relationship. Bill was prepared because that's his personality uh, for the apocalypse. And they just had a good life. You know, they had as good of a life as they probably could have had uh, living in the normal world, world to be honest better because they would they have they would they have ever met and would bill have ever been able to express his identity right um fully because he was certainly he was literally he wasn't just in the closet he was in the basement he was in the sub sub basement right I like know. he was not coming out um stop pretending the government are nazis they are nazis well they weren't before <laughs> that's one of the lines i highlighted in the outline because it was so good yeah so good yeah, so it was really beautiful to see in this horrible, and I'm sure we're going to get a lot more horror, right? You know, we got, we, got a, we got a kiss of horror in the last episode, and we certainly got some weird Ellie stuff at the beginning of this episode. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot more that we're in store for, and it was just kind of nice in some way to feel like even though there's all this horribleness around, you know, at least some people found something, you know, in this that they may not have found if this hadn't come to pass. So, like, we wouldn't have, we still don't want to vote for having it to come to pass. But even though that it did, here is something that is beautiful that, that came out of it. And it was whole, and it was complete, and it had its beginning, its middle, and its end. And the end was, again, like I said, you know, uh, of their own choice. They got to go out how they wanted to go out. And that, from a narrative, storytelling, modern television, that was just extraordinary. Just extraordinarily beautiful. Can I use Pubimi here? Is this a safe space? Uh, (laughs) Sure, I don't know. Shall prove but mine instrument. (laughs) If you're not listening to our Tolkien podcast, this is a line where, you know, this is Tolkien's view of, like, what his god thinks of his devil he's like you know all that you're gonna do in evil shall prove but mine instrument shall shall be turned to good you know i'll turn that into something beautiful and i think that 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 concept is alive here right is like yeah this was a horrible situation that ended up beautifully for a couple people yeah and it was beautifully told (laughs) for a piece of television the the visuals were great the dialogue the scripting was great the acting nick offerman just knocked me off my ass, onto my ass. Yeah. Like, I was like, whoa. And uh, there were just some beautiful scenes in there that I never thought that I'd ever see on television. And I would not have recognized uh, Frank as Uh. Armand from The White Lotus if (laughs) nobody pointed it out to me. Because, you know, if you change an accent on somebody, I just won't recognize them. Change the accent, put a beard on them, I won't recognize them. Right. Okay. So So you're telling me that you would make a good spy. You wouldn't be able I would to not make a good spot. That is true. <laughs> okay. I'll stick to podcasting. Got it. I'll, I'll, next time we meet in person, I'm going to put on a hat and a fake mustache. You have to put on a British accent, too, or something like that. Oh, Lord. I don't know if I can hold one for... I could say a word or two, but not, I don't know that I could carry on for very long. Well, on that note, why don't we get into this episode? Because right. I am excited to talk about it. Very. Um, so, a couple of notes. Normally, we try to do a little bit of a research topic. We were going to talk about the showrunners... 
uh, Craig Mazin and um, Druckmann. What's Druckmann's first name? Neil Druckmann. Neil Druckmann. But this episode is so big and so dense that we're going to push that to the next episode. I wanted to point out that apparently season two has been greenlit. So we're, we're good on that front. And that apparently, and I've seen different numbers and different percentages kicked around, but the show um, viewership from between episode one and episode two, or was, I don't know, I, 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 so many, I saw so many data points that I really don't know how to make sense of this. The point is, is that from episode one till now, this is the highest viewership increase that HBO has ever had. So it's the biggest step up wow. between episodes, something like a 22% increase. Uh, and I, I saw like 22 million number, you know, this number of 22 million and this and that. And so um, whatever the actual data is, what we're seeing here is phenomenological, <laughs> right? This is a, this show is now a phenomena. It is like Game of Thrones in that the show is capturing people's attention. They're tuning in. We're participating in the water cooler conversation, right? We're appointment TVing, whatever you, non-binge model, whatever. So many people are focused on one topic at the same time. And HBO has a, uh, they're riding a rocket ship on this one. You know how I know that this thing got big? is that my mother-in-law visited this weekend and said, you know, I really got to get HBO. I've been meaning to watch The Last of Us. <laughs> what? <laughs> a video game series? My mother-in-law is watching a video game series. All right, so That's this is definitely awesome. blown up beyond the initial fandom, for sure. Yeah. So that and that's extraordinary, and so it uh, makes all the more point. Like, uh, give us some ratings and some reviews so we can get noticed in the podcasting space because there are so many podcasts on this show right now. It's it's wild. I just came across a book that I just um, checked out from my library onto my Kindle, and I think it is this one by uh, Felix Gillette. Is this it? It's not TV. The spectacular rise, revolution, and future of HBO. And uh, I'm really excited. I heard the, the author on another podcast this last weekend on the uh, Slate Money podcast um, and talking about HBO and the you know, world of streaming and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm definitely going to check that out. And I'm, hopefully, maybe I'll do a mini book report on a future um, Second Breakfast, which is our Patreon exclusive. Well, let me tell you my beef with Discovery HBO this week. Uh-huh. Every Sunday, my wife and I look forward to our garbage, right. to our 90, 90 Day, day fiance. fiance. Yes, yes, yes. And during my daughter's nap, we're like, all right, we're going to watch it. Especially because we can't watch it live because it overlaps with The Last of Us. Mm -hmm. And that, that clearly takes priority. Clearly. This week, they did not drop the episode early like they always do uh -huh. on Discovery+. Plus. And I am livid. I mean, I just, the HBO and Discovery, this merger has got to stop. I need yeah. the FTC <laughs> to step in, stop this thing, make sure my reality TV stays good, make sure my Last of Us stays good, and let's move on. Well, you should check out this. Uh, I, I should forward you a, a link to this podcast because I think it'd be pretty interesting for you to hear some of the conversation about what's going on at HBO. All right. Maybe you should throw it in the show notes. I'm not linking another podcast. We, we, we can't compete. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's Slate. It's, they're huge, right? There's no way we're going to crack their We're numbers. bigger than Slate. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's get into the, sh <laughs> the show recap. 
before John starts having del- delusions. Um, <laughs> all right. No cold open this week, which is interesting because I think I, I like the fact that they're not going to maybe necessarily use a, a standard model or the, sort of a cookie cutter episode to episode. They're going to tell the story as the story needs to be told. Fingers right. crossed. I, I like that. Well, between that and the episode length, too. I mean, the episode yeah. lengths, I, I saw, you know, people talking about how they've been, like, all over the place, and I think they're going to continue to be all over the place. Okay. And that's because, like, different sections of this story right. do not need as much or as little time. And I support that for this kind of television. There yeah. are other shows, like, I started watching Poker Face. Like, that show should follow its, its format and its, you know, time window, and because that's what that show is. This is a different kind of thing. This should be uh, exactly as the show runners want to create it. Yeah. By the way, Poker Face is a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying it. I've still got to check it out. I've still got to check it out. We had a lot of podcast recording this weekend, so stay tuned for that. All right. We start with Joel and Ellie in the woods, 10 miles outside of Boston. That was not Northeast Forest. That was not a forest in the Northeast. Um, but hey, it's fine. We can deal with it. Joel sticks his injured hand into the creek while building a small stone cairn. This was a fun little, you know, walk through the woods. I mean, kind of just a place setter. Not a lot going on. I, I, I do think that I do think that that was certainly for test, right? Right. But Joel was too closed off to say anything, even to right, Ellie, so. who, who knew Tess and who screamed to go back for her and you right. know, had, obviously had an emotional connection to her. He's like, nah, this is my thing. It's, it was a, he can't speak the, um, the complexity of his emotion, the nuance of his emotion, share his emotion in a raw form, like just sobbing or something like that. Are you telling me that a middle-aged man is emotionally stunted? <laughs> that middle-aged man, that's for sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, it seemed like this was an outward expression of his emotion, uh, building this little stone cairn. Absolutely. I liked the injured hand thing because it did uh, double duty. One, it sort of gives us a, a time frame, right? We're still within the same time frame, right? Mm. It, it's a marker in time. But the other thing that I thought was interesting is that it links between, right, so why did he attack the Fedra Guard? Because it was a sim- situation similar to um, him losing Sarah, and now he's lost Tess. So it's sort of this weird connective thing that takes us back all the way to Sarah and all of the grief and things that Joel is carrying, all this, emer- this emotional burden that he's carrying. It's rough to watch Joel shove everything down, and mm-hmm. um, I don't think anyone should expect that to change very much in the near future. But <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, I think that you know Ellie is slowly getting him to loosen up a little bit, to open right. up a tiny bit. There's a crack there. Right, right. Well, back at their camp, Joel rudely tosses Ellie his package of beef jerky, or jerky, whatever kind of jerky it is. Ellie confronts Joel about Tess and about his choices about what happened. Joel silently nods in assent. Ellie asks how much longer, and Joel says it's a five-hour hike. Casually. Don't blame me for something that isn't my fault, John. <laughs> it's, it's rough. I mean, I'll say this. like This is like a very different character than we're used to, right? It's not mm-hmm. like somebody who's going to beg for forgiveness. It's somebody who says, like, what do you want me to do? 
I didn't do this. I didn't right. ask to be bitten. Mm-hmm. She's actually very good at like forgiving herself, kind of. Yeah, she doesn't have a lot of hang-ups in that ring. She doesn't get hung up on things. She's living very sort of straight. And one might ask how she got that way, though. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. is there, does she have any, like, guilt about anything? Does she, you know, has she had to learn to sort of move past something? Because it does seem like she's lived a pretty lonely life, right? A pretty traumatic life. Right. And she's naturally inquisitive. And she's not afraid to put herself in front of life, no yeah. matter what that is. She's super smart and she's had to grow up fast, except mm-hmm. when she's not grown up and she almost gets them attacked. Right, exactly. Um, I love the clarity, too, of her pointing out, like, look, man, you made the choice to, you know, you needed a truck battery, so you decided to take me on as cargo, right? You chose the route. Like, you, all of this was you. And so Tess's dying, Tessa's dying is not my fault, so stop blaming me. Like, she called that out straight. She called Joel's bullshit out right away in no uncertain terms. And he had nothing. He couldn't say anything. He just had to nod. Yeah. Right. Like he's (laughs) like, "Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I would be left speechless by that. That was, that was so unexpected, but it was very in character for Ellie. Like I think that all of the dialogue they've added for Ellie in the show is very much in character. Like I love all the dialogue they've added so far. The dialogue in this is it's snappy, punchy, Whatever superlative you want to add on it, it is, I'm loving it. And I've got, you know, we've been marking down in our outlines, you know, real good sensational lines. And so we'll, we'll keep doing that for the show because it's, it's too good to pass up. As they walk, Ellie asks if there are any infected around and why Joel is being so vigilant. Joel says he's keeping watch out for people. She asks about Bill and Frank, and <laughs> Joel tells her that Frank is nice. <laughs> <laughs> I love the are they nice? Frank is. Yeah. <laughs> so great. And you're like, I had no context for that, right? Like Yeah, I laughed. I laughed. Mm-hmm. Cause I knew. Right. We don't even see Frank in the game other than the body because right. okay. you know that's that's it's just all in the present. There's not really any flashbacks. Okay. But yeah, no, I liked the way that they developed him in, in this. It really made sense. And and um this whole thing of uh Joel saying, let's keep watch out for people. Yes. I think that that's starting to seed something that we'll, we will start to see more as we go through. And I think that we see it even in this episode, which is that if you know to expect infected, you can deal with them pretty easily as long as you're prepared, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can plan for infected. They're not that smart. They, you know, die pretty easily if you shoot them in the right spots, unless they're a clicker. And you, you can just plan around it. But people are way more devious, and people right. who are desperate in this post-apocalyptic world will do a lot of bad stuff to get what they want. And by this time, anybody who's survived this long outside of a QZ, boy, they have got to um, have their wits about them, uh, if nothing else. Yeah. Ellie asks Joel about his head scar and tells him that it's cool that he was in a gun battle. They discuss the nature of gun battles, Ellie is her usual annoying self and starts asking about having a gun. She's going to keep asking for a gun, right? Well, maybe not anymore because she did take a gun during this interesting. episode. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Jumping ahead. Like, that's interesting because now that she's got one, is that going to be a change in behavior? Is she going to stop asking for one? And so that'll be a tell? I don't know. Interesting. Maybe. You know, it's, it's something where I think that this is sort of where Ashley Johnson, the voice actor for Ellie in the game, 
mm-hmm. put stuff in, which is that Ellie was originally supposed to be super passive right. and super like damsel in distress. Right. And uh, Ellie is somebody with agency. Ellie is someone right. who, if someone's coming at her, she's pulling out the pistol. Yeah. Or her knife or whatever, right? She's yeah. not going to be passively she's got. Behind. I mean, even the fact that in the um, Firefly headquarters, she wasn't even under direct attack by Joel. Joel was just sneaking up on uh, Mylene and um, the, the other Firefly uh, leader, and she attacked out of a side door, right? Like, she was like... Right. It wasn't even like Joel was menacing her already or anything like that, so... Oh, uh, yeah, she could have hid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She could have got out easily, right? Yeah. Um, one little thing that was kind of annoying me in the scene, and it's just a minor thing, um, Joel's holster is unsnapped for a lot of this mm. early part. And that's like, man, that's the quickest way for you to lose your gun, right? Like, mm. it's going to bounce out. It just bugged me. It was just a little production thing, so whatever. I, I just had to call it out, though. For anybody else who's had any, you know, uh, presence to firearms, like, it, it, I don't know. It's just like one of those things that was like, uh, it's like nails on a chalkboard. It was like really bothersome. <laughs> this sounds like when uh, Michael Livingston in our Wheel of Time interview complained about trebuchets and their direction right. in uh, medieval yes. combat. Right, point it in the yeah. right direction. Anyway, minor thing. They come upon a service station where Joel has stashed some supplies. Uh, Joel says, you ask a lot of goddamn questions. Ellie replies, yes, I do. (laughs) Really getting this banter going, right? This is uh, the Ellie and Joel roadshow, traveling roadshow now. Literally. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yep. Joel explains that they stash supplies on their routes in case of emergency. Ellie sees a Mortal Kombat 2 video game and excitedly talks about the character Mylena. As Joel looks around for their stash, Ellie says she's going to look around for anything good left over. This was fun. I mean, I I used to go to the arcade a little bit as a kid. I don't know if you did, but Mortal Kombat was always a fun time. Um, And then I I played the uh, some of the video games as they came to home console. Uh But yeah, I mean, it's it's just such a ridiculous, violent game, and it's just so funny that like Ellie, who's grown up in this post-apocalyptic world, is like, yeah, I'll take more violence. Yeah, exactly. And she was super excited about it and super bummed that she couldn't play. I know. So here's a generational question for you. Was Mortal Kombat 2 your game du jour? Or? Oh, I have no idea. I have no okay. idea which Mortal Kombat. I, uh, at the time I was playing in arcades, I just, I don't even remember. I was probably like five or six. <laughs> Got it. All right. Because so, I was kind of Street Fighter. Like the first Street Fighter was like, okay. Uh, yeah, I, was, I played Chun-Li a lot. I liked okay. her a little. I was not really a Street Fighter person. Right. So yeah, there were totally, yeah, they were two different worlds. Like we'd be at the arcade and there'd be like the Mortal Kombat people, the Mortal Kombat 1 people, and then the Street Fighter people. And, you know, sometimes you'd play, go and play, drop a few quarters on, on one of the others. But like they were really separate disciplines within the video game mm. world. So um, write in if you have, um, tell us your favorite Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat character. I will tell you my favorite arcade game that I ever played, which was in Chuck E. Cheese when I was mm-hmm. very little. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. And um, they had a, an X-Men side-scroller that okay. I was very bad at, mm-hmm. and I needed so many tokens to keep going on it. Yeah. But it was the most fun thing. And I'll tell you, I went to, a, uh, to an arcade bar, a barcade, mm-hmm. as an yeah. adult, and I found it, and it was one of the most joyous moments of reliving my childhood. <laughs> That's awesome. I've ever had. Yeah, some beautiful nostalgia there. Um, As Ellie goes in to look at the back of the shop, she says, is there anything bad in here? And Joel replies, just you. (laughs) Too good, too good. But then she goes, 
You're getting funnier. Yes. Yeah, she does. Um, and I, one last thought. I thought that the um, video game, her reaction to the video game really shows us that she's still just a kid. Yeah. But one that likes violent delights. Do they have violent ends? Yes, that's the question. I think so. Because when she goes downstairs, we, we have a violent end to things. Yeah, that was a pretty dark moment, right? Like, I yeah. actually, I don't know if I've seen that kind of darkness in Ellie in the game. Well, let's set up the scene here. Ellie finds a trap door and explores a basement storeroom where she finds a box of tampons and an infected, which is trapped under a pile of rubble. She cuts the infected on the forehead and then stabs it in its head. This was a really, I, I'm still processing this scene. Well, first of all, let's just praise the show for addressing the issue of women's products in an apocalypse. <laughs> because my wife actually said that to me at the beginning. She's like, you know, they never talk about like periods in the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, apparently they do now. They, yeah. we're, we're back. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And um, I wonder if there's like a, fa is there a Fedra factory now? Like, how do you, how do you get more of those? Because there's a lot of women in this world. Yeah. Right. And they, and they need, uh, they need to be able to manage that stuff. And sure. uh, yeah, that's a, it, it's for a long time, it's been a, a big problem in terms of taxing. Is it, is it, are, are those products taxed and, and all that kind of stuff? So yeah, that's uh, a really good point that like, here we see what is a necessary everyday product in a post-apocalyptic world. That's a pretty important product, <laughs> right? Yeah. For like more than half the population. Sure. Yeah. Um, so as far as the infected, I had no idea what to make of this. Maybe she's just curious. I mm -hmm. think that in her head, maybe she's going, this could have been me. Mm -hmm. That's part of it, I think. Oh, that's right. Like, so is that why she cut it? Like to see like, if I had been infected, like what would be going on inside of me? I think that could be it, but the show didn't really tell me that. So that's really just my own headcanon. Yeah, 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 totally. Maybe they'll address it more later if she, if she finds more infected or something like that. Pretty interesting, though, how she's, like, spooked, and then she goes, oh, no, he's just trapped. It's fine. Yeah. And it's kind of a mercy kill, right? Like, he, he, this guy, first of all, he's trapped. And second, he's lost his mind. Like, there's no, there's no life for him now. That's a mercy kill. Sure. But is it a mercy? But I think the question is, is what was her motivation in the moment? Like, cutting the thing, that's pretty weird. That's like tying firecrackers to cat's tails and yeah. you know doing that kind of stuff like that's that's kind of sicko stuff i think what's weird is the order of it right because if she mm -hmm. had stabbed him and killed him and then she's like well i'm curious about Dissecting. what's in there sure i'm gonna cut him open i think that that's like kind of defensible but the cutting open and causing pain before killing him that's that's a little more you know icky yeah and then it seemed like i don't know how did you, i don't know how you read the stabbing scene but it was there was it was kind of a rage. There was kind of a bloodlust. I don't know. I'm still. I need to go back and actually watch just that scene again too to see what emotions she was giving off uh, in that moment because it was brutal in some ways. It wasn't like she was. Oh, poor thing. Here, I'm so sorry for you. Let me, you know, boop, and you know, that's it. Like it was a. It was part of something else that's going on with her, and, and that is her fascination with violence. Ellie definitely has something going on. She definitely has something going on. And that's not even like me being mildly interesting. That's like, I wonder if the show's doing something like a little bit different here. Well, we know that they're not afraid of doing something different, right? Yeah. Especially oh, like, yeah. I mean, with Bill and Frank. That's, that's, you know, prima facie evidence right there. Yeah. All right. Joel finds the stash and then goes to look for Ellie, who emerges from the back room. 
Joel repacks the stash and puts away the AR that he took from the Fedra officer, saying that there isn't much ammo out in the world for it, which makes it more useless than useful. Ellie asks again about having a gun. Yeah, this was a cool scene. I mean, first of all, I just want to comment that she like shakes the tampons and flaunts them. And is like, you didn't <laughs> actually go through this place. Like, she will do anything to get a point on Joel. She will. What do you think about him leaving the gun? Yeah, that was interesting. I I like the fact that they set this thing up about um, yeah, we leave supplies on our route so that when we're coming back, if we're short on equipment or whatever, you know, we've got fallback positions. That's like cave divers, right? They stash oxygen bottles along their routes so that like if they Mm. get into trouble or whatever, there's always, they can always fall back to another position where there's some safety and some resources. So I really liked that construct because it, what it tells me is, is that Joel and Tess are really smart people and they really have their shit wired tight. And uh, so that was cool that he left the AR there. That really surprised me. I, I get the point that if you can't find the 5.56 ammo and that it's mostly been burned up, which I, well, I don't know, maybe what, how, how, many, how many years jump are we, 2023 to 2003? Yeah, 20 years. 20 years. You know, that did, did we burn up all the ammo that we have in this country? You know, well, I think it's, it's it, possible. Fedra has a monopoly on it, right? That's true. And then and all the survivalists have, have like shot up all of their ammo uh, in the intervening years. So I, I suppose that's possible. Um, but I was like, yeah, that's, you know, is it, more, is it more of a pain to carry the weapon? Is it, does it give you a false sense of security? You know, if you've got, how, how many rounds does he have left? Five, six, seven, ten? I don't know. Um, and then once those rounds are gone, then it's useless. I'll, I'll call back to another post-apocalyptic movie, Mad Max. Um, and in that, Mel, the original Mel Gibson movies, Right, he carries uh, around this little uh, side-by-side uh, sawed-off shotgun, and he doesn't have any ammo for it. And one of another character gives him uh, some ammo, and then that sort of becomes a you know a Chekhov's you know shotgun uh, situation in the, in the movie. Hmm. Um, but this is the show isn't doing that, right? Like it's it's not like some fairy godmother survivalist is going to give him a couple magazines of you know five five six. Well, there is so, a fairy godmother survivalist, but it's, it's, uh, <laughs> that'll come later. Right. But interestingly enough, we never see Bill carry modern military style weapons, long arms anyway. When he comes out of the house, he comes out with a regular old Remington shotgun, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And then later when he's battling the Raiders, he's just got uh, a hunting style rifle. And we never yeah. see any, mm. any actual like heavy military style weaponry i think there may be uh, uh one or two hanging on the rack but we never see him carrying them so interesting maybe it was a practicality thing right maybe he was thinking like yeah it'll be easier for me to get hunting ammo than it will mm-hmm. be to get military ammo in an apocalypse yeah maybe yeah the uh, um less of a uh attention focus right just it's normal like you go to walmart and you buy the ammo right it's like no big deal yeah and i think that the big thing that they were doing with this leaving the gun thing is that in the game, you really feel the stretch of your resources, uh, and you okay. feel that you you need to make every bullet count, especially when uh-huh. you're playing on a harder difficulty. How do you do that in a TV show, right? Because you're not playing as a character, and you don't have to worry about how much ammo you have. But Joel says, yeah, this is useless. We got to go, and we got to downgrade so that we can actually find ammo. That's a great way to sort of nerf the character and, mm-hmm. and uh, make them struggle a little bit more without having it be like, 
well, it fell into a lake, you know, like something like stupid and convenient. Right. That's a really interesting point in this crossover world between the video game and the show. That's really cool that they bring in that sort of uh, resource management level uh, of stuff into the storyline. Yeah. And I could see on the return trip, you know, he might pick it up again. They may need it, you know, to be able to get back into the city. That's where it might be more useful in some ways. Right. Um, but that's cool that it's a kind of, uh, they're bringing in a vibe from the video game in through, through a practical plot device like that of him stashing the gun. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, back on their walk, they see a crashed airliner across a hillside. They talk about air tr- airline travel and then about how the world came to an end. Joel exposits on how the spread might have happened. Joel recalls the date, Friday night, February 26th, 2003. Of course he knows that date. I mean, that's the worst day of his life, right? Yeah. His watch. Yeah. With his busted watch, right? Yeah. of course. Yeah. That's the problem. He broke yeah. his watch. I do like his attitude about airline travel. I'm pretty sick of climbing into a metal <laughs> airline tube and playing, paying $12 for a sandwich myself. Yeah. But it's cool to see the, the sort of dichotomy, right? Whereas Joel's sick of it because it was every day to him. And then yes, Ellie's like, yes, wouldn't exactly. it be cool to be in the sky? Yeah, right. You went in the sky. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about the um, sort of uh, explanation of how the, the spread happened? I like that it was uncertain. Uh-huh. I like that it was never fully explained because I think that that makes sense, right? I mean, like Ellie says, like, they're not going to teach you how the government messed up. Right. Yeah, I went to Fedra school. They don't teach us how their shitty government failed to prevent a pandemic. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that goes back to the same thing. It's like, they're not going to be like, well, we failed to inspect food here. Mm-hmm. And that's how it got into the country. And this is how we bombed the shit out of these towns. Uh, and we uh, rounded up people and shot them because we didn't have room in quarantine. So it's, no, they're not going to tell you that. They're right. just going to tell you, well, nobody could have stopped this. And uh, here we are. Right. Uh, I like how uh, Joel says bread, cereal, pancake mix, right? My wife That's and I great... looked at each other at that moment. <laughs> that was a great callback to episode one. Yeah, and I mean, this is, I, we've talked about differences with the game. This is also a big difference from the game. Is like, uh-huh. it was never transmissible, at least as far as I said in the game, by food in the game. And that's actually, I think, much scarier because, like, how do you know that your food isn't contaminated then? Mm-hmm. People were talking about, like, Ellie eating the sandwich last episode, right? And yeah. Joel mm-hmm. and Tess eating jerky, which yeah. clearly has no grain. Uh-huh. I don't know if there was a point to that. I don't know if that was a thing or if they figured out. Because it, it doesn't make sense. Like, if bread's, like, something that people would be too nervous to eat, why does bread exist? Like, who's making bread for immune people in this world when there's only one? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, well, I don't think we have enough information. We haven't seen anybody else eating any bread products except for her, so... Yeah. Yeah. That could be some good internet sleuthing, or that could be some tinfoil hat territory. Yeah. But we can get rabbit. We've learned that. Yes, we can. Uh, Joel directs them to cut across the woods to avoid seeing something disturbing. Ellie challenges him and then sees a mass grave. Joel explains that Fedra executed uninfected people as part of their mitigation plans. Dead people can't be infected, says Joel. Great line. Yeah. Great line. I mean, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? It's this game is not going to sugarcoat what happened. Mm-hmm. Fedra's like, yeah, well, better they die like this than they get infected and come attack us later. Right. Yeah. And we, you know, the QZ is full already. And uh, 
we need you know it's going to take fuel and precious resources to get people from all these far-flung locations into the QZ. Um, yeah, and if we leave them, like in Boston, we saw you know all that that horde of of people out um, uh, of of infected there, right? Like that's that's a clear and present danger. Did they need to put the baby there? Yeah, that was that upsetting. Was, I have a yeah. newborn, and I didn't yeah. want to see that. But you know what? We got through it. All right, let's uh, take a break here, and when we come back, we will pick up from where we left off. All right, and we're back. As we uh, zoom in on two of the skeletal remains, we smash cut back to September 30th, 2003, where we see a mother and child being loaded into a military truck along with other uninfected. As the truck departs, we cut to a scene of a mysterious man watching the scene unfold from a series of security cameras in his bunker. Good fake out with the baby, because I was like, oh my God, they're going to show it. And I did not Mm want to see that. Yeah, um, yeah, and I then agree. They, yeah, but then they just use that as the time setting yeah. and just go right to Frank. Uh, sorry, Bill. And then Bill, his whole, his whole uh, being so happy to be alone mm-hmm. was magical. That was yeah. amazing. Right. Yeah, I thought it was nice connective tissue without having us experience the violence of the moment. Like, we get the point. You don't have to show it to us. Right, that there, yeah. you know, that this happened, and I thought that was a it was a nice way to um, tell the story without us having to see the story. Yeah, definitely. Not today, you New World Order jackboot fucks. What a perfect first line for him. Yeah. Um. Uh. Before QAnon, before all the other sort of modern day variations, uh, it was FEMA, the New World Order, black helicopters. Those were the threat. Um, for that time, Bill Clinton and FEMA, like they're coming to get you and they're flying around with, you know, black helicopters. And I think it's funny because then Fedra does become what people were afraid of at the time. Uh, but you know, not real, but then George Bush real. did the cordyceps fungus. Right. There you go. There you go. As the man, as the mysterious man emerges up into the basement from his bunker, We see visuals of weapons and supplies, as well as a wine rack. Wearing a gas mask, the man searches his house and yard to ensure that no federal troops are still around. He removes his mask, revealing Bill, played by Nick Offerman. What a great reveal. What a great introduction. Yeah. Now, can I just say, if there are any preppers in the the audience who have... Survivalists, John. Survivalists. Okay, fine. If there's any survivalists (laughs) in the audience that have a lovely wine cellar, I want to be your friend. Right in. Right. (laughs) Hook us up. Hook us up. Yeah. Because in the apocalypse, this is where I want to live. Now, John, were you a big Parks and Rec person? I loved Parks and Rec. I watched the series. That was a background show for me for a while, so I probably watched it like three times in bits and pieces. I have never seen a full episode of Parks and Rec. Season one's not great, but after that, it's it's banger after banger. It's really good. Okay, uh, that style of comedy, that sort of what I forget what they call it, two camera something or whatever. Just yeah, it, mockumentary it a, and yeah, yeah, that yeah, like The Office. Like 
I never, I never really got into that. And so I know Nick Offerman peripherally, and I've, you know, in, in some other things that he's been in and around, and I know of him, I know like that he is this sort of iconic character. So when I had no idea that he was going to be in this. And so oh, really? He, yeah, none. And so when he rips off that gas mask, I was gas mask. I was like, "Ooh, yeah!" Like, "Wow, what a great way <laughs> to bring this character who I have no idea who this is." But damn, that was cool. Well, Ron Swanson is sort of an anti-government, you know, libertarian type of, uh, you know, kind of paranoid person, right? Uh huh. And I don't think he's that dissimilar from this guy. <laughs> so he's playing to type here. He's basically just Ron Swanson in the apocalypse. <laughs> a gay Ron Swanson in the apocalypse. I love it. There's even a scene in Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson on his birthday eats steak alone while watching a black and white movie. And no way. Whiskey. And I was like, <laughs> they just basically redid that. That's awesome. Good for them. I love it. I love that kind of stuff. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. Montage. I'm Coming Home to Stay by Fleetwood Mac plays while Bill gathers supplies and resources including wine. We also see him fortifying and booby-trapping his house and neighborhood. I love a good montage. Oh yeah, great montage. One day, while having what looks like a delicious meal, he's alerted by his security systems to an approaching infected, which is killed by one of his ingenious booby traps. It doesn't get old. Yeah, Love it. Yeah. Just watching TV, basically. He is so clever. He is so damn clever. He's really... I mean, the fact that he goes to the gas, the natural gas plant, and knows which wheel to turn to keep the gas flowing on a stove, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, that and, and the, going to the Home Depot and, mm-hmm. you know, getting his, uh, getting his setup going and making sure he has all the supplies he needs, whatever gas he wants. Really just excellent. I couldn't figure out why he was using the boat, but I guess that's just he was using it in lieu of a trailer. So Yeah, he just didn't have a trailer. That's all right. Fair enough. That diesel generator, though, he's got out back, that thing is going to guzzle gas. So, like, I think it's, you know, it's fine. Well, okay. good thing there aren't other customers. Hand wavy. And it's going to be loud as F, too. That thing. Huge. Yeah. Um, we get another montage. Two montages in one episode. Cream's 1968 hit White Room plays, mm. and we jump four years ahead to 2007, and we see Bill use a key and transponder to remotely open the security fence that he has erected around his house. Or his neighborhood, no less. Yeah, he's, he's got a large property now, doesn't he? Yeah, like he's fenced off the whole, yeah, several blocks, which is smart. Yeah. Right, you don't want your security perimeter right up against the, in, you know, where, where your nest is. You want to be out plenty of distance so that you have time to deal with the threat and then that you can layer those defenses um, you know, and, and create a sort of an integrated locking system. Definitely. And I think that pays off later too. Oh, seriously. Um, a couple notes about the song. Um, I love some of the, this is a great song. It's got a, a big hook and here's one of the lo- lyrics of the hook. I'll wait in this place where the sun never shines, wait in this place where the shadows run from themselves. This song is, um, about a bunch of stuff, but at its core, it's about depression and aloneness, as well as transitions. And the song is literally about a white room that the uh, songwriter lived in for a time while he was in a, sort of a transitional period in his life, where he decided to get serious about things, to stop drinking, to get off drugs, 
and to really, you know, focus on himself. And so the song sort of jumps through, sort of shuffles through time, where um, the different stanzas indicate different things that have happened or happening. And I kind of like the fact that it mirrors the Bill and Frank storyline, because we sort of shuffle through their life at the same time. But I, I really like that Bill is starting out in this place where the sun never shines, where the shadows run from themselves, right? And, uh, you know, that eventually changes. And that's what this song is also about, is this transition. I'm sort of in this purgatory-like state. I'm living in this white room, and I make some decisions about things, and then suddenly life starts to happen. Right. I did know this song, by the way. Okay. My, uh, <laughs> I was once a teenage guitar player, and of course, okay. every middle-aged man had to be like, have you heard mm-hmm, of Eric Clapton? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, exactly. Because Clapton was, on, it was, in the, was in Cream then. Every, every other person would say Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, or like Carlos Santana. Those were like right. the three that always came up. Right. Yeah, totally guitar gods. All right. In his workshop, we see uh, Bill making a booby trap that'll be used later in the episode. He's creating one of those grinder things. Uh, we see a Gadsden flag, uh, more exotic weapons, and then a buzzer goes off, alerting him to a security threat. Bill exits the security primer- perimeter to check one of the pitfalls, and he encounters Frank played by Murray Bartlett, a.k.a. Uh, Armand from season one of The White Lotus, a show we both enjoyed. Yeah, we didn't cover season one, but we did no. both watch it, and I think we both enjoyed it. And I think, I don't know about you, but Armand was one of my favorite characters of season one. Absolutely. Oh, the highlight. Yeah. Yeah, that was, he was the best part. I, I am glad that the, he was such a different character in this, though. I mean, yes. this guy has range. This yes. was such a... You know, I, I, especially because they're both gay men he's playing, mm-hmm. I was worried that they were just going to have him rehash his character, right? Like, be mm-hmm. like very, um, sort of, be like very, like, over the top jubilant, right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. like but Flamboyant. also like sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they didn't really do that, right? Yeah. They, no. they, instead, they were like, okay, this is a, this is a very, like, quiet and, uh, kind man who's just going to, you know, he uses his words well and sparingly mm-hmm. he keeps calm and he just you know has has a relationship with this guy yeah against his better judgment bill takes him in and clothes and feeds him while waiting for bill to serve their meal frank looks around the house and starts to take in all the little details and clues as to bill's character frank is amazed by the meal and wine selection bill says everything tastes good when you're starving Frank replies, yeah, but not like this. A man who knows how to pair rabbit with a boujolet? I know I don't seem like the type. No, you do. <laughs> oh, so good. So good. Yeah, that was, that was the first flirty line I, I noticed, yes. which was great. Yeah. And, and walking around the house, you're right, he runs his finger along the dust. He sees the piano. He's looking at sort of all the... Uh, the trappings of this house, which I, I, I'm guessing was his parents, his mother's house, right? His parents' house. And it's sort of locked in time, this thing. Um, but it's interesting that he's picking up on all these little subtle clues. I think that Frank sort of sees the house the same way he sees Bill, which is, this is run down, but it has potential. Mm, that's a really cool insight. I like that. Is like, you know, with a yes. little work, with a little yes. shine. Yeah. This will be a good thing to be with. 
And this dude knows how to cook, right? And he knows his wine. So like, he's got some culture to him, right? Like, It's true. You do not pass that up. Uh, one little comedy moment I love is that uh, Bill's gun gets caught in the chair uh, when he's like trying to like, you know, settle himself in. And that uh, something similar will happen again in the future, which I thought was a, a nice little touch. And it just goes to Bill, as deadly as Bill is, as, as like surgically competent and deadly, right? He's also a little bit of a buffoon and a little bit like uh, a little bit of a clown, uh, you know, a little bit of a character of himself in some ways. Well, I think he's finally vulnerable, right? And I think that, you know, anybody could become flustered around their crush. And yeah. that's what's happening to Bill. He's like, he's enamored by this handsome man who's just stumbled upon his property, taking a shower at his house and being flirty with him. I mean, come on. Yeah. So they finish their meal in awkward silence and Frank says he'll get going. But first, he wants to play Bill's piano. Blimey. Bill is uncomfortable with the idea of someone messing with his mother's 1948 antique piano. You know how much these are worth? Currently, nothing. <laughs> Frank <laughs> yeah, finds a songbook. It was great. Frank finds a songbook that uh, he identifies with Bill, The Best of Linda Rodstadt, which is going for about 60 bucks on eBay right now. Wow. He yeah. He flips through the pages and finds his favorite song and begins to play Long, Long Time, which is, of course, the title of our episode. Bill is horrified by Frank's playing. <laughs> Frank stops and invites Bill to play, promising to leave after. Bill begins to play, and they're both moved by the song. This was a good song to go into. I mean, it was, it was uh, a good theme for the episode generally. Yeah. And um, I, I really love just them, like, the, the, the courtship section felt yeah. very natural, right? I yes. think that mm -hmm. it is so easy, especially in something where it's basically like a montage where you're, you're going through time very quickly. It is so easy to make it feel cheap. Mm -hmm. And they did not fall for that trap. Everything felt really natural as these two people yes. who are just desperate for a human connection. And who are kind of attracted to each other. The, it's like we saw uh, in Kaleidoscope. Um, there were some scenes with the FBI agent who has a dealing with some family stuff. And it was just so awkwardly written and just sort of clunky and kludgy because it was being forced in some way. And we're trying to exemplify this thing where, like you said, this um, romance, this very quick romance, um, really did feel very natural. It did feel very authentic and genuine in the moment. Oh. I've never heard of that show, Kaleidoscope. I uh, <laughs> don't think I'll check it out. Okay, fair enough. But yeah, no, I mean, it, it was good writing here. Yeah. And life's full of flaws, who knows the cause, living in the memory of a love that never was. So this is a 1970s song that was released on the Silk Purse album. It peaked at number 25 on the U.S. Top 100, and Linda Ronstadt was nominated for a Grammy in 1971, but she was beaten out by Dionne Warwick for I'll Never Fall in Love Again. And the song is about a woman's unrequited love with a man, and she talks about how she um, imagines herself in love with this man who even warns her, like, hey, you know, I don't have those feelings for you, so, you know, don't, don't get hung up on me. And then she also talks about all of the things that she will never experience, that she can imagine, but that she can't experience because she's not actually in a relationship with this guy. So 
uh, again, another really nice song pick for what I think is both of these guys' favorite songs. Yeah, this was good. This was good. It was it was a great way to make them feel closer. I, I, like music is such a bonding experience for people yeah. like liking the same band, liking the same song, you know, having yeah. that same emotional attachment to this stuff. I think that it's it's a great way to move something forward. Followed, you know, uh, following a amazing meal, an amazing bottle of wine, <laughs> and then now <laughs> the same song, like yeah, those three things together. Like wow, like we there there is an overlap here that is undeniable. Definitely. Frank asks Bill if there's a girl, and then he full on kisses Bill. They embrace passionately, and Frank asks Bill his name <laughs> and then tells him to go take a shower. Frank meets Bill in bed, and we learn that Frank has only ever been with a girl once a long time ago, and they make love. Frank says, I want you to know that I'm not a whore. I don't have sex for lunches, not even great ones. So if I do this, I'm going to stay for a few more days. All right. Did you notice a look, a suspicious look that Frank had before they went to the bedroom? When, um, when Ron Swanson, when Bill went to go take a shower. Uh-huh. I saw a look that said, I'm doing this to get something, okay. not necessarily because I like this guy. Right. Interesting. Right. He's calculating. Think, it was a calculating Yeah. And I think look. that mm-hmm. that is backed up by this statement. I don't mm-hmm. have sex for lunches, not even great ones. I'm going to stay a few more days. I think, that, I think that I read this as starting off as a transactional relationship that eventually becomes genuine. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree uh, at all. Yeah. I loved how, um, as Bill, uh, Nick Offerman, is walking away to go take his shower, how crunched and scrunched and sort of his shoulders are up and he's just really tense. He's just had probably the most physical and emotional and psychological connection that he's probably ever had in his life. It's and his first his, erection. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, not first <laughs> erection, but first, first erection with cause, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he's just like the physical acting that Offerman gives us in this whole episode is off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. Really great stuff. I mean, just the chemistry between these two is, mm. you know, I never, I never thought that I would get this kind of, you know, great chemistry between characters in this show. Cause yeah. I, I, I don't think that anyone associates this show, this franchise, I should say with like a strong romance aspect. Mm-hmm. Right. But this was a beautifully written romance, like just yeah. as its own thing. If you just took this episode. The, <laughs> okay, speaking of, of looks, when Frank pulls the towel off of Bill, he sort of gives Bill a look like, hey there, <laughs> big fella. <laughs> like, I wasn't sure it was so subtle uh, that I think I might, I might have to go back and check that scene again. But, I, but Frank, had a, there was a look that passed on his face, and I'm not sure what it meant. I didn't know how to read it, but there was something there. I, I think if you've got an opinion on that, write in. Let us know what your, what your take is. <laughs> yeah. Smash cut to 2010, three years later, with Frank upset at Bill as uh, Frank storms out of the house. Frank argue, And this is where you thought, like, okay, this is it. This is where... Yeah, gonna, I thought that know. was it. I thought he was done. Right. And, and that, like, they're together three years. Like, we're all like, oh, and then he's, like, pissed off. Like... What is this argument about? And then we realize that it's about Frank is arguing to fix up the house, that he just wants some paint and gas for the lawnmower. F- Bill finally relents, 
Uh, and then Frank tells him that he's also going to fix up some of the shops, not the stupid ones, and promises Bill that they're going to have friends. In fact, he's been talking to a nice woman on the radio. <laughs> what? <laughs> Smash cut to Bill and Frank hosting Tess and Joel for lunch in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. The government are all Nazis. Well, yeah, now, but not then. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because, like, it's so true that, like, this is actually what people who are into conspiracy theories fear, right? Like, totally. that the government's totally. going to have a totalitarian state in a post-apocalypse and, and use some kind of catastrophe yeah. as a way to assert power. And that's exactly what they did. And they've been brutalizing people. And yeah. Bill's, like, finally right, right? Like, yes, this, is, exactly. this is a conspiracy theorist who was totally right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember at the beginning of the um, COVID pandemic and some Facebook posts of some, you know, people I knew. And I was like, wow, people are really taking this in that direction. And it's like, wow, this is going to get weird really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe Bill would have been one of them. Who knows? What do you think about uh, Frank wanting to fix up the neighborhood and stuff? I like it. I mean, I think Frank is like, all right. I'm finally out of survival mode, right? I'm finally mm -hmm. out of my primitive instinct. Three years. Yeah. Yeah. It takes him that long to finally get out of flight, fight or flight mode. And then once he settles, he's like, well, now I just want to live a normal life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, don't keep me. Yeah, I, I, what was it? If you say resource management, I swear <laughs> to God. I love that. I'm going to go. I'm going to go walk into one of your booby traps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's that's exactly where I was like, oh, man, maybe he does walk into the booby trap. And that's, you know, it's, mm, it's right. Uh, more. Right. I get like I'm 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 sitting on the edge of my seat this whole episode. Like, when is this going to fall apart Waiting for it to happen? Right. And it just never did. And I'm glad it never did. But it's uh, it's it's just fun to think about, like, the anxiety I had. And I, I'm going to rewatch it because I uh, I want to watch it without that anxiety. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I love that, you know, this couple, right, all couples, we all try to um, we, we need to find that overlapping connection. But then we also need to find that diversity in, in what's important to us and the things that we're good at and the things that we're not good at. I'm terrible with finances, but my spouse is great with them and, in fact, nerds out on them and loves to, like, you know, do, uh, do all that stuff. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad, like, because my life is so much better for having a person in my life who does that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, whereas these two, like, you know, Bill is the, you know, uh, devious booby trap maker and, and survivalist. And Frank is like, I, I want to pay attention to the little things. I want some beauty in my life. I want some... Whole, you know, pe you know, uh, aesthetic beauty, tranquility. You know, feel a little house proud about things. Um, so I really loved that they are this pair, and I love the fact that he's going to go fix up some of the shops too. I think that was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I think that this was a normal like married couple argument, right? Absolutely. And that's, that's what was cool about totally. it is that it did fake me out as a game player. Mm -hmm. But in a way that totally made sense if you're just watching this the first time. This is just a normal argument between a couple that's disagreeing. Absolutely. And I love the fact that Frank, like different people deal with the stress of relationship arguments in different ways. And I love the fact that Frank as a person can be upset, but being upset doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that the relationship's over. It just means right. that I'm upset and I'm trying to get my point of view across to you and I'm trying to convince you of something or I want to move our conversation forward in some way and you're not. And so I'm getting flustered by it and that's okay. 
right? That is a normal reaction to living in close proximity to another human being. Hmm. All right. Uh, <laughs> over lunch, Bill and Joel eye each other over wine and handguns. Joel says, I'm the same way. And Frank says, oh, you're a paranoid schizophrenic too? And Bill replies, <laughs> I'm not schizophrenic. <laughs> wow. This, this was lovely. I loved the smash cut too, going from the neighborhood, you know, and it's looking kind of rough and ramshackle too. Here they are hosting a little garden party with Tess and, and uh, Joel. I, I a little bit be don't believe that Tess and Joel risked getting out of the quarantine zone, which we've seen is a hard thing to do, uh -huh. just to have brunch. But I don't know. That's, that's the one unbelievable thing to me. So they did. The, I, I'll pick up where um, Frank says that he'd been talking to a nice woman on the radio, right? So, so obviously there was some, some communication going on before. There was some pre-conversation happening. But yeah, that's why Bill is so annoyed by this whole thing that they've brought in these two strangers. And Joel even says, you know, in the next scene, um, that, uh, well, here we go. Frank takes Tess inside the house, leaving Joel and Bill to have a conversation. Joel tries to put Bill at ease by telling him what resources they have in the QZ. Um, Bill demurs, and Joel points out the flaws in Bill's fence, right? So as they're having this conversation, Joel does say, like, if my significant other brought somebody into, my, into our situation, I'd feel the same way as you do, Bill. Right. It's, uh, I like to think that Tess had to talk Joel into going too, right? Yes. Agreed. Yeah. And uh, I, I do think that they do paint a good picture of like Bill and Joel as being kindred souls a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. These two, two sort of um, overly protective, suspicious, <laughs> paranoid, but not schizophrenics. Right. And I, you know, I do think that there is something to be said for stressing the importance of the human connection in this kind mm -hmm. of world. Yeah. I'm a little bit surprised that uh, Joel and Tess didn't try to live with them, honestly, like in the same neighborhood, at least. Hmm. Interesting. Because, I mean, sure, they have stuff in the QZ that they don't have here, but I'm sure that Joel knows enough people in the QZ to buy from them if he has the resources of the outside. Yeah, I like that idea of, like, um, we'll be one foot in each world a little bit. We'll be the shuttle between the QZ and here, and we'll set up shop a little bit more here than in the QZ, and we'll have other people get the QZ stuff out. Yeah, yeah that's not a, a half, bad, half bad idea, actually. Yeah, like, what is keeping Joel and Tess in the QZ? Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, it's, it's fine. I'm, I'm fine with leaving it here. Yeah, maybe they got to be close to the, the resources or something. Could be. Uh, I do like um, a couple of things. Uh, one, how Joel says, you know, to, tells him to stop waving the gun around and just can you get that gun out of my face. <laughs> Joel's just eating a salad and, and, <laughs> and Bill is like sh holding a gun at it. Like, who eats a salad at gunpoint? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's one thing to have it in your holster. It's another to have it on the table and you're like cocking and uncocking it. Um, and then, uh, great uh, callback to Joel's construction uh, experience, right, in the, in the pre-pandemic times, where he's able to identify, you know, the fence has only got a year left, and I can get you some aluminum, high tensile aluminum, which will last forever. So, like, kind of, you know, giving Bill something to think about, 
and, uh, yeah. and a reason for them to to do business together. Yeah, I like that they sort of uh, had Joel like weasel his way into Bill's at least, mm-hmm. if not his heart, then his respect. Right, As appeal to his practicality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. like I need stuff from you. Like I can't mm-hmm. just do this alone. I guess. Right, and yeah, I and mean, you're a construction guy, and you actually have experience and knowledge in these some of these things that I don't. Yeah. Tess and Joel prepare to leave. Frank and Tess agree on the radio codes. Joel confirms that Bill and Frank are probably safe from Fedra up here and infected, but they should be on guard for raiders who will probably come at night. Okay. Um, I like that, you know, if we get little mysteries like the radio codes or something like that, um, they're not holding on to them till the end of the season or the beginning of next season, (laughs) but they're paying them off fairly at a fairly good clip. And that feels nice, right? I, I like that. I, I as a, uh, it's like care and feeding of your audience, right? You know, don't starve us too much, right? Give right. us our little Scooby snacks as we're going along, uh, so that we don't get uh, cranky about things. Um, and and internet speculation, right? We let us speculate about some of the bigger questions on those little stuff. Um, just keep a keep a you know keep the clues coming, keep the answers coming right behind them. Yeah. I did love how it was basically just Tess and Frank fanboying, fangirling about the 80s absolutely. music. They're like, yes. the 80s should be trouble. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was, that totally was good. Cute. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, total foreshadowing here of the Raiders who will probably come at night armed and they'll, you know, but they don't defeat Bill's defenses. No. No, they almost defeat Bill, but not his defenses. Yeah, right. And Bill, like, I love how Bill just gives Joel a look like, okay, all right, pretty boy, we'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like how they de-aged Joel? Yeah, I thought that I, I was going to comment earlier and I forgot that um, seeing Joel in like the forest and on their hike, he looks tired and old and gray haired and stressed. And then to, you know, but it was still subtle enough that when they give us uh, the garden party scenes here. It does. It's a real shocking contrast. So good job production on that. Yeah. All right. Um, We see a scene of Frank encouraging Bill to exercise. And then the uh, Frank um, surprises him uh, with a strawberry patch that he's grown with seeds that he traded uh, two with Joel and Tess for one of Bill's guns. They eat strawberries from the vine and are moved by the beauty of the moment and in, of being together. Beautiful scene. I mean, just really tugs at your heartstrings. I mean, this was a scene where I, I started to turn on this, right? Like, I, I started mm. to think, okay, maybe they're not going to do oh, what okay. they did in the game at all. Right. You started to turn towards, like, wait a minute, there's something totally different going on here. Yeah, like I, I still for a while thought like, okay, it's going well right now, but I could totally see them taking a left turn and making mm-hmm. it end the way it did in the game. Like something terrible happens and Frank leaves. Right. This was where I was like, okay, maybe they're not going to do that. Maybe nice. something is new here. Right. I love how uh, Frank says that. He's like, don't worry. It was just one of the little guns. <laughs> so sweet. Yeah, which gun? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Not on the strawberries. That was yeah, good, too. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, yeah, and then just this, like, um, that they're opening up to each other in new ways and um, sharing th- those fears and, you know, what's important to them. <laughs> and, like, 
you know, older means that we're still here. Like that was a really beautiful line. But then when Bill said, like, it broke my heart, man. I was never afraid before you showed up. Like, wow. Like, so authentic and moving and um, really uh, true to Bill's interior, inner emotional life, right? Well, the only thing Bill could really lose before Frank was his life. And if Mm -hmm. you lose your life, you're not going to know it. Right. But if you lose someone you love, boy, does that hurt. Yeah. And then from a pacing standpoint, what do we get? We get um, Joel foreshadowing raiders coming at night. Then we have this really tender moment where these two characters are really moved at their life together, at being in the moment, about sharing something that they've uh, built together. And then what happens? Rainstorm and raiders. And so that was a really nice buildup for the, this setup uh, in terms of pacing and delivery, right? So like the stakes are, the stakes have just gotten turned up. I've never been afraid. I was never afraid before you showed up to, wow, now we've really got something to be afraid of. So raiders eventually do come and during a rainstorm at night. They trip one of Bill's deadly booby traps, which is the one that we actually see him making way back first when he, when he first encounters Frank. Yeah. Frank wakes, retrieves a gun, which we will see later, and then frantically searches for Bill, who's out in the street shooting at the raiders. Bill is shot in the abdomen. Frank tends to his wounds. Bill tells Frank that it has to be Joel who will be the one who will look after him. And then the scene fades to, the scene fades to black, and we don't know in this moment whether Bill is going to survive or not. Yeah, and I know that we were doing time jumps. It, was, it got a little bit hard to see where we were in timelines mm-hmm. at a certain point. And this was where I was like, is this where the distress call came from? The 80s mm. music? Yeah, that's I what that I did that too. that was possible mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah, I totally But it did. was not. We learned it later. Was. It was not. Um, I loved, I don't know if you paid attention to, like, if you do your another rewatch, when Bill is in the workshop uh, and when he gets the buzzer that Frank's fallen in the, 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 the pit trap, Look at the thing that he's making. He's got a, a, a wheel grinder, uh, an angle grinder um, set up with this little chute for uh, putting a bolt down into so that when the angle grinder turns on, it'll create sparks, which is then what he's hooked up to a gas distribution system <laughs> to create that flamethrower. Like, this is like some serious... MacGyver, I mean, it, it blows MacGyver away. This is like, uh, what were those two guys? The Mythbusters, right? This oh, is like man. some serious Mythbuster stuff. Would you rather live with the Myth, Mythbusters or with Bill in the apocalypse? Ooh, you know, the Myth, the Myth, the Mythbusters, the Mythbusters famously didn't like each other. So I don't know that I could live with those guys. So I might almost want to live with Bill in, in a lot of ways because at least he can cook. And he drinks good wine. So I'm definitely going with Bill. But can you compete with the beret? Mm, I'll, I'll, I, I can leave the beret behind, thanks. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Fair enough. The beret and the little uh, French painter goatee thing, yeah, I, it, never, it never got me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have a Chekhov's gun here in the situation. Yeah. And I, I will say, it was a really tender moment to see Frank... Yes. Taking the bullet out of Bill and like mm-hmm. you know, using the whiskey to sanitize and yeah. this whole call Joel thing was just really heartbreaking. Like 
like all I care about is protecting you even in my dying moments. Yeah, that's sweet. That's actually a really good point. I yeah, she he he yeah. Yeah. And and who did he think of? Joel. Right? Yeah. Because so, he's a protector. He's he's yeah. a kindred spirit there. He recognizes that. Um and I really liked how Frank was just cool and level-headed. He didn't lose his shit, right? He was like I'm going to handle this. We're going to be okay. So that then when we fade to black, uh, and then when we fade back in with Frank on a wheelchair out on the front porch, and as Bill wheels him inside, we see that we've jumped ahead another 10 years. And so we go from foreshadowing, you know, we, introduction of Tess and, and uh, Joel, to foreshadowing, to deadly encounter, to, nope, psych, Bill survived. It's Frank who's the one who's ailing now. That yeah. was a real roller coaster, uh, f- emotional roller coaster for me. They fake you out with that wheelchair. Totally. One more thing about the the fight. Yes. Uh huh. This guy has spent a decade doing <laughs> booby trapping. Yes. Right. And he doesn't have one piece of cover. Yeah. Yeah. Are you yeah. kidding me? He's standing out in the street like. Just pointing his gun at people and, and hoping for the best that they don't shoot him. Come on, that's a really good pro- like not some some uh, bollards or uh, what do you call those big concrete barriers, Jersey barriers, and uh, or just hide behind a house. You have a ton of houses around. Exactly, you're you're shooting a a uh, a hunting rifle with a scope. Like you've got range, right? Like it's not a problem. It, that was a little silly to me. Okay, no crow's nests, no little like sniper positions. Yeah, all right. I, I, oh, I'm you're right. You he would have had a crow's nest. That's totally. what it is. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm with you there. I didn't think about that. That's a good one. All right. Um, so Frank seems to be an invalid suffering from some degenerative disease. Frank struggles to work on one of his paintings as Bill waters the flowers in the garden. Over a meal, Bill helps Frank with his pills and then helps him into bed. This was tough. This is really tough stuff. There wasn't a cure before this, and there won't be a cure after it. Yeah. That was hard, too. Yeah, what's our, our, do do you care what it is? I know people have been chatting about on the Discord, there were a lot of people kicking theories and ideas around. I don't know. On some level, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And then on some other level, we as human beings just want to know like that kind of stuff. We need to have some way to box it, categorize it. Um, I don't need to know. I think that it's fine. I mean, like it doesn't change the character motivations no matter what it was. It's an yeah. incurable degenerative disease in an apocalypse. Yeah. That's all yeah. I need to know. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's <laughs> who's going to be coming? The door-to-door MRI salesman? That was good. That was good. <laughs> Um, in the morning, Bill finds Frank has dragged himself into his wheelchair on his own. They argue, and Frank tells Bill that it's going to be his last day. Very hard, but I think that Mm -hmm. this was really an interesting commentary on, like, you know, assisted suicide, which is a hot topic in our society. Like, everybody's got a freaking Mm -hmm. opinion about it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I also, I feel like people have changed their views a lot about that in the last like 15, 20 years, but, um, it's a tough subject, right? Like, do yeah, you, yeah. how much do you want to give people the power to end their life? And how much do we like protect people from themselves? Right. Like that's a, that's a debate, right? I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I won't come down on either side of it because this is an entertainment podcast, but <laughs> right. I, I think that it was a really interesting way to bring that commentary in here. I, um, you know, in my family, um, uh, not too far extended out, uh, pretty close, actually. I've had um, people who've had to um, 
manage spouses in invalid states like this, uh, not, not dissimilar. Um, and it's tough. Physically, it's tough. Mentally, it's tough. Right. Um, <laughs> slowly watching your partner degenerate, right? Um, having to care for them 24-7. And then they do something that pisses you off and you're like, come on, man. Like, you know, yeah. like, seriously? Yeah. So, and, and again, just beautiful acting by Offerman and um, Murray Bartlett. Yeah. Um, yeah, just, just beautiful the physical acting, the emotions that are coming through, the, the weariness and the, the embarrassment of, you know, having to take all these pills and have to drink through them from a straw and all of this stuff. It was really, um, really accurately depicted, I felt, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it definitely is something that resonates even in the non-apocalyptic world. In the living room, they discuss Frank's decision. Bill struggles with his grief. At the thought of losing Frank, uh, as Bill moves to get closer, his gun catches on the crocheted <laughs> couch throw, which is a callback to the scene where he, his gun gets caught in the chair <laughs> at the very when Frank and him are first uh, meeting. Yeah, um, I think Frank, that a lot of this is uh, calling back to their first date, right? I mean, yeah. like you know, I mean, I think that's romantic. I mean, when I proposed to my wife, mm-hmm. I took her after the proposal. I took her. Uh, to where we had our first date. I took her like around right. the town we went to uh, right. and walked around. And, and that's just something like your first date means something. Like the, first, yeah. the time you meet means something. And uh, the way that they sort of recreated a lot of aspects of their first date throughout this whole sequence was really yes. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, same. Uh, uh, my spouse and I, we go back to the um, uh, restaurant uh, in Brooklyn where I proposed and we now take our daughter there and, you know, uh, on our, on our meet anniversary and our, <laughs> our proposal anniversary, whatever it is. So yeah, it's part of our narrative, right? And this goes back to human beings and our, you know, need to understand our experiences through story and recurring themes and, and, um, nostalgia are very potent and active forces in our, um, you know, in, in our sense of self and our sense of personal history. Yeah. Also, I just want to say, like, Frank wanting to get out of bed by himself on his last day on Earth, mm-hmm. I feel like that means something, too, right? Like, he's Ooh, like, that was right away that. you're yeah. signaling, like, I am taking back some agency in my yes. life where I have not yes. had agency in years. Where in the previous scene, when they're at the meal, like, he, Bill has to help him with the pills, and that is so infantilizing. Right. Yeah, and then Frank says... It took me all night, but I did it, right? Like, that's a really good point. Yeah. He was not ready to let himself be uh, lulled into sleep. He was going to take that mm. sleep and make it happen. Which, it's in its own way, is a kind of a beautiful romance, too, right? A romantic notion. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm, I'm, I, I'm trying to reclaim my life uh, for us, for you, for me, for myself. I will tell you that in this moment, my wife turned to me and said, Bill should just leave with him. And uh, she got her wish. <laughs> right. Well, we got a couple more scenes to get through to get to that. Um, Frank outlines his last good day, which includes having toast, going shopping, getting married, having a delicious meal, and then falling asleep in Bill's arm after overdosing on sleeping pills. Bill struggles and refuses and then accepts. We see various scenes of their neighborhood and important places from their lives together, like the, <laughs> the pitfall that Frank fell into. <laughs> While sitting at the piano, they exchange rings. 
Bill brings them a meal and wine from the kitchen, all reminiscent of their first uh, date together. So this is like what you were talking about, like they recreate a whole bunch of stuff. Um, You know, I love that they put them in front of the piano for their, you know, wedding ceremony as it was. Yeah. And that um, when Bill brings in the meal, he doesn't sit at the far end of the table. They are sitting next to each other. It's the same, but he's changed, right? Like yes. the, the situation is the same, same but Bill acts differently. Yeah. Same wine. I, I don't know if it's the same meal exactly, but yeah, that's really great. Great commentary. Yeah. When he sat next to him, I was like tearing up. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is really it, guys. This is the end. Yeah. Once they finished their meals, Bill brings a fresh bottle and two glasses and mixes the pills into Frank's glass. Frank quaffs it, and then Bill downs his own glass. Frank realizes what's just happened. Frank is initially upset, but comes to terms with it, and then tells Bill to take him to bed. (laughs) This was really emotional. This was really beautifully written. Um, I mean, it's a little bit predictable sometimes, if you ask my wife. But um, I don't know. The execution was just so good that I don't care. It was predictable in the most beautiful way, though. <laughs> right. Like, the character motivations all made sense. Like, I never was afraid of anything before I met you. That totally leads you to, well, then if I don't have you, then I don't care to live. This isn't the tragic suicide at the end of the play. I'm old. I'm satisfied. And you were my purpose. Wow. <laughs> if I start ugly crying, will you edit it out? No. <laughs> I won't. I shan't. I shall not, as people say. You shall say. not. Um, yeah. Amazing. I, I, I don't I don't I almost don't want to say anything to spoil the beauty of the <laughs> of the moment. Uh we fade back in and Joel and Ellie approach the security fence and Joel uses a code to open the gate. Joel notices that things seem off, like the flowers have dried up uh in front of the house. They enter the house and as Joel searches, Ellie finds a letter and a key. She begins to read the letter, and Bill admonishes Joel uh, uh, in the letter. She begins to read the letter, and from the letter, Bill admonishes Joel about their shared purpose in life. Joel finishes reading the letter by himself. First of all, there is no way that Bill would have actually given the code to Joel. Bill would have opened the gate for him every time after viewing him on the camera. Right, right. Okay. I just don't buy it. I don't buy that, but... If we're going to look past that, I do okay. like this idea of like, all right, well, nobody else is going to get through except Joel, so I guess I'll yeah. write the letter to him. Well, maybe he, you know, well, this is all headcanon, right? But maybe after um, the battle with the Raiders or something like that, he arranged with Joel to have the code in case, you know, they had to come to the rescue or something like that. Yeah, it he could was be. incapacitated, so. And you know what? This might be colored by my opinion of game bill which is a lot right. darker and a lot more right. like he literally says to joel at the end of the sequence now get the fuck out of my town <laughs> it's right. a very different character i mean yeah. it's the same core right it's the survivalist who's kind yeah. of crass and kind of uh you know rough around the edges but there is no redeeming qualities to game bill all right we need to uh flush this uh this bill out of your mind and you need to go and watch <laughs> this episode from the start i know i really gotta i really gotta redo this yeah absolutely um, I thought that it was a pretty intense thing, and this goes back to Joel's shame. You know, is Joel feeling shame at the, his failure, not only to protect Sarah, but to also protect Tess? And when Bill 
calls him out, you know, calls Bill himself out and then calls Joel out for being, this is our purpose. Woe to the motherfucker that gets in our way, right? Um, and then, like, Joel has to deal with the fact that it says, use all of my resources to protect Tess. That had to sting. Yeah. That had to hurt. Yeah. It was, that was bad. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. really bad. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I like that he got the supplies this way. Yeah. I like that he got the car this way. I think that that made sense. And I think that if they had done a shorter sequence, mm -hmm. you would have been saying this was convenient writing. Ooh, yeah. That just good point. let you totally. handle the tools that he needs to go across mm -hmm. the country. Right. Here's plot mechanics. Yep. And spending a full episode on the character development of the people, mm. why he got left this thing, you know, what, what kind of relationship he had with these people. That made that not lazy writing. That made that a fulfilling way to move these characters along their journey. Speak truth to power, my brother. Yes, that is like, I totally agree. That is a really good point. That is awesome. Because if, if anything shorter and it would have felt cheap and unearned. Right. Yeah. Right. I've seen complaining about getting away from the main story, but I really think that we needed this. I really think that this was the right choice. And this makes me trust the showrunners so much more because this is something yes. that I would have never thought of. Yes. But is so perfect. I, I we're, okay, we're based on a video game. This is not a retelling of the video game, right? This is right. A, a new creative vision, and we have the game creator as one of the co-showrunners, so trust that the beats that we need to feel are going to be the ones that they bring into the story when and as necessary. And three, three episodes in, I'm with you. I trust these guys now. Yeah. But then the next scene, and I'll let you say what is said, but mm -hmm. the next scene is a direct lift from the video game. So, like, right. they're taking where they want the video game to come in, and they're improving where they can. Joel and Ellie gather up supplies and then load up Bill's truck. Joel lays out the ground rules for their journey ahead. Ellie finds Frank's gun and hides it in her pack. And I love how he says, you know, repeat the my instructions back to you. And rather than going one, two, three, she just says, what you say goes. <laughs> like, it was a yeah. beautiful summary. Yeah. But also, like, it was a little small act of defiance, right? Because you wouldn't mm. repeat it back to him verbatim. Right. Because she's never going to let you do that. She's never going to let you have full sort of control over you, like, over her like that. Right. But I don't know if I stress this enough. This entire scene was a direct lift of the dialogue from the game. That's amazing. Because it this plays perfectly. Right. It works. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I trust these showrunners so much to be able to sift through what the video game has and say, mm -hmm. this is for the screen. This is not. I want to see their red yarn board in the writer's <laughs> room for how to keep track of all of these things. It has to be an amazing, an amazing sight. Yeah, for sure. They load up uh, Frank's truck. Ellie experiences her first time driving in a car. She finds a cassette tape. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough she knows how to use it. And uh, they listen to long, long time as they drive out of town. That was an emotional journey. And mm. uh, I do like that now we are, I, I think that, you know, I knew that we were going to somehow get a car. I, otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Right. But, no way they're getting to Wyoming without a car. Right. But I'm glad that we didn't spend three episodes getting a car before mm -hmm. we even get on the main journey. We are going on the main journey. Mm-hmm. Nice. I really, I, when she was playing with the side mirror, I was like, oh, is she going to read, are they going to have her read the objects may appear closer? <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
<laughs> that would have been so, pretty good. Yeah. What did she say? It's like it's like a spaceship, right? She's yeah. Like poking everything. Seatbelt. What? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> and he's got to show her how to put it on. Because how would you even know? You've never been in a car. No. No, you wouldn't know. Yeah, absolutely not. And it'd be like weird. You got this thing on your body. It's like, I don't feel safe without my seatbelt, you know, strapped across my body. But like for that first time, yeah, I, I, it must be feel awkward. Well, I mean, the people who originally invented cars didn't think about seatbelts either. And then people no. started dying. And then they were like, oh, maybe we should secure ourselves to the exactly. viewing vehicle. Uh, I love Joel. He's like, no, 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 wait, that's Linda Rodstadt. Leave it. This is a good song. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, yes. That was awesome. I felt my old manness uh, vindicated. Yeah, I'm not as old then, as Joel, uh, but like, uh. <laughs> uh, not so good, not so good. Beautiful light, the golden light coming in, and they use that all throughout this episode without overdoing it, but there were great little scenes of sort of golden light coming through, like when they're in the strawberry patch and stuff and driving out of town. So really nice effect there of making us feel warm and fuzzy and that like, you know, early morning or late afternoon, you know, uh, like, oh, the, you know, there's sort of everything's right with the world, uh, even though it's all effed up anyway. Um, so, yeah, really great. And then he uses that same little keypad thing with the key to um, unlock the gate uh, as they drive out that, um, that Bill had in an earlier scene. It was a beautiful episode overall. I mean, Oof. I've heard people say that this, people who had screeners for the season say this was the best episode of the season. Really? I could see it. Okay. I think it's the best episode for, so far, for sure. I, I'm worried that they're going to really um, put us up against the wall now. <laughs> and, uh, it's going to get dark and violent. These violent delights have violent ends. They absolutely sure do. They well, sure I do. won't say any more because mildly interesting all right. night. And this was a long episode. I mean, an hour 22 uh, is no joke. Right, yeah. I don't think they're all going to be this long. No, and I don't even... Is it, was it an hour 22 with the credits and then all the, the intro I, stuff? I think I saw it was 71 minutes in reality. Okay. So it wasn't crazy long. It was just a little bit supersized. Yeah, it felt crazy long. It felt yeah. crazy long. And it was a really interesting construct to bookend the Frank and Bill story. And then when we were with Frank and Bill, we were just with Frank and Bill. Yeah. I think that it was smart to start and end with Joel and Ellie because I think it would have been frustrating for people to come back after mm-hmm. that crazy scene with Tess and not f- immediately follow up with the two characters. I, I have hope that we're going to see a little bit more Tess in flashbacks. It looks like they're not afraid to use flashbacks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree that they're not afraid to use flashbacks. I, I heard that, and I have not listened to this, but I've heard that on the official HBO podcast, Neil Druckmann revealed the headcanon backstory for Tess he has. And uh-huh. I won't say it on here because it might be spoiler yeah. for, for the season. But if you are not afraid of spoilers, go okay. check out the official podcast because I think that they're talking about that kind of stuff. Right. I'm staying away from all that stuff because I just want to enjoy the show on its own terms. Right, um, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, they should be able to tell me who Tess is without having the showrunner explain it on air on, right. on a podcast because that's where we were at with Westworld. Everything needed to be explained in a podcast. So Oof. let's not get there. No, let's not go there. All right, anything more you want to say uh, about the episode? I just can't wait till next week. I can't wait to rewatch this one, honestly. I'm probably going to watch another two or three times. I'm pretty hyped the same way that we were hyped about Andor. Um, It's just great to be uh, behind a microphone talking about a really quality piece of entertainment. Me too. I've been watching The Mandalorian too, so this is my month of Pedro Pascal. Oh, wow. Yeah, and we're about to start up. Um, Well, that's a 
a good note, we're we got to talk about our programming notes, but before we do that, we wanted to do our Patreon shout out. All right, so special thanks as always to our Lore Master patrons. We've got three tiers, and the Lore Master is the highest tier. And we always like to give uh, a shout out because um, we're always a little bit surprised that those people <laughs> subscribe. Anyway, Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H. Uh, Michael G and David W and Michelle E. Thank you all for your ongoing support. And thank you to all of our patrons, our patrons, our patrons for your support, because um, the support you give us actually materially helps us offset the costs of doing business and producing this podcast. So thank you. Absolutely. And patrons, reminder, there is a second breakfast thread that David posted about cereal on the um on the patreon if you go on the page check that out comment about your favorite cereal or what, what you like to do with cereal i know david w has already done that <laughs> uh and it's a lovely post i think you should read his comment yeah, um but also if you just have any questions for us or you want to tell us what you're watching go ahead it's a lot of fun it's going to be fun when we do second breakfast speaking of we have to talk about our programming don't we yes we do so we do have second breakfast coming yeah on uh February 12th, we're going to have mm -hmm. that coming out. Uh, that's a Patreon exclusive. And as for the public feed, we've got a lot of cool stuff coming. On this Friday, we have Star Wars The Bad Batch. That's actually out today. Uh, if you're listening to this on the public feed, uh, the Bad Batch episode is out today on the Patreon. So if you, if you can't wait to hear us talk about season two of The Bad Batch, you got to sign up for the Patreon. I can't help you. Um, we have more Last of Us coming every single Wednesday, uh, Monday for patrons generally, except last week because you lost power. Yes. <laughs> I had to fight my way through the fungal apocalypse. <laughs> and we have Silmarillion stories, which we just had a new uh, episode come out on Monday, which was of the beginning of days. Next month, we're going to be doing of Aule and Yavanna, and that's going to be a lot of fun. So Tune in for that. And then lastly, Marilyn Pakila, who you might recognize from uh, some of our Tolkien podcasts and maybe even our Andor season wrap up. She's coming back. We're bringing her back a bunch of times this year because we're going to be talking about the Earthsea cycle in our new book nook sort of uh, corner that we're doing in our Lorehounds feed, where we're going to be breaking down books in a non-spoiler and then a spoiler section. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to start with A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. And if you want to listen with us, read this book by March. It's a short read. I think it's about 200 pages. It's pretty light reading. Check it out. Let's have fun with it. And let's uh, do some reading together. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, talk with uh, Marilyn because even though it's um, a light read, it's a pretty dense thing. And it's very early in the fantasy genre. So it does, um, it's a precursor to a lot of other stuff. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to Marilyn about that. Yeah, definitely. Oh, hey, forgot to mention. Um, over on the Electric Bukaloo Hot D feed, Maester Anthony, who is doing his Clash of Kings read-through, he had his guest uh, on one of his podcasts, and that podcast is going to be out on February 23rd. We read one of the chapters um, that, where Theon goes back to Pike for the first time after leaving Winterfell. So if you're a Game of Thrones fan, even if you're not reading the book, Hop into the conversation because we have a lot of fun deconstructing Theon and what's going on on Pike and, and some other cool themes. And uh, talking with Maester Anthony is always a great time. So uh, I yeah. really had fun on that one. That was a great conversation. I loved hopping back into that world. Also, if you like uh, weird, kitschy, you know, 70s, 80s horror films, uh, Anthony's got another podcast called Cocoons of Horror that he does with his uh, stand-up comedy buddy, Steve. 
and they have a good time uh, goofing around with movies. And uh, so go search for that, Cocoons of Horror. It's a lot of fun. All right. I think that's it for our programming news. Jean, uh, this was a really great episode to, to talk with you about. I, I really enjoy the game, non-game perspective that we have on this. And yeah. Um, that's that's been fun, I think, because yeah. I, I think that especially on this episode, we saw how that gives you a yes. drastically different experience, and where they're lifting directly and then altering uh, radically. So uh, very cool, very cool to have uh, the uh, two perspectives for this show. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, uh, we'll see you next Wednesday for uh, the Last of Us episode four. Until then, check us out on our feed and our Patreon. Thanks, everyone. The Lorehounds Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works, and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.